the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This is our final show of 2021, so I thought it would be a good idea to look ahead to the new year and to get the views of a panel of experts on how 2022 might turn out. I was joined by Galway-based chef J.P. McMahon, former politician and now an advisor to leading multinationals Lucinda Crichton, and IBEC chief executive Danny McCoy. I began by asking J.P. McMahon about how the latest COVID restrictions have impacted on his three restaurants in Galway City and how this might affect his plans for 2022. It's hard to know the long-term impact. On the short term, we've had mass cancellations, mostly due to people not really wanting to eat earlier. We have opened earlier to try and accommodate the first, I suppose, sitting or so. So effectively, we have been, our our uh, industry has been cut in half, so to speak. I mean, we're getting one sitting. Uh, it's worse than an ear. An ear has been open for the last six months. Things have been going well there, but the, the dining experience in an ear is three hours long. So we can't even get a full, uh, full sitting. And other than bringing people in at four or half four, which is just too early for most people, we're going to just do a lot less. Look, the grants and things are still there. So it's not, I mean, the financial aspect is hard to qualify at the moment. I mean, I don't know if we'll, if we'll know financially until until next year. I mean, uh, getting a €5,000 grant when you usually take in 30 or 40 grand is, is certainly going to put a lot of pressure on on each restaurant but i think i think i suppose it's the whole the demoralizing the, the nature of of the kind of continuously opening and closing and losing staff members to to other industries because i suppose our industry is a, a very precarious one at the moment and a lot of people just want to just want to work and uh, that's that's one of the difficulties that we're facing now i mean as you said we're talking monday the restrictions come in today I think we will be lucky to make it to New Year's Eve at this stage and, and looking at Europe, I, uh, I, I'd i imagine we will be locked down for most of January. We've decided to close the business for most of January. We will honour the bookings up to New Year's Eve and then for a few days after. We were due to take our break two weeks uh, in January, but I, I, I don't see the point of opening in January because... Opening till eight o'clock is just pointless. And that's for all three venues, JP? Yeah, we're going to close the three of them for January. And then hopefully we can start again. I mean, the hardest thing in the pandemic is is, is starting. And like, it's, it's very easy to stop. You just turn off all the lights. You lose some food. Your staff go home. The hardest thing is, is restarting the restaurants. And Anir was closed for 18 months. And that was very, very hard to restart. And during the pandemic, I honestly thought we, we wouldn't open it again. Because we're still paying rent and a mortgage. That's full. That's not halved. We continue to pay that. So starting a business again is uh, is, is difficult. So look, we, we, we will see how things go. And what's the situation with your peers in Galway? Is everybody else sort of taking this view that it's probably just better to sit out January? Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of uh, businesses are going to sit out January. Some aren't even opening for New Year's Eve. 
I see uh, one or two of them posting. I see some restaurants are closing Christmas Eve and some have decided to close now and uh, not open from today. Just said, like, say Sunday was the last service of the of the year. I can see that around the country as well from different restaurants in Dublin and Cork and in, in other counties that they're all kind of making decisions in and around. It really depends where you are and what sort of footfall you think you can get during the day. But it's a hard one to call. And I know in some places, like I was talking to the tannery, they, they, they were quite successful in, in moving a lot of their bookings around. But others others are not so successful. And we're somewhere in the middle. I mean, sometimes people are happy. Sometimes they're angry. Uh, sometimes they want you to accommodate them and you can't. And I understand it's frustrating if you had a booking for New Year's Eve or Christmas Eve. And now all of a sudden we're telling you you don't have a booking. But I suppose there's very little we can do. Danny McCoy, we thought that 2022 was going to be a clean slate, if you like. We were going to be over the worst of these uh, COVID restrictions. We certainly thought that was going to be the case. In October, we'd have a fully reopened economy, you know, 90 odd percent of the adult population vaccinated. We seem to be in a very good place. What's your view of 2022 now? Yeah, you're right, Kieran. Um, it is uh, really dispiriting, um, particularly for JP and people in the hospitality experience economy in particular. This has really been a, a punch and pushing us backwards. But the one thing we have learned, I suppose, over the last 21 months is the resilience of the overall economy and the capacity to move into other channels of delivery. So the working from home, while not desirable, um, it still allows the economy to function significantly and also generate the resources for the public finances to put the business supports and the supports to households in place over what hopefully will be a shorter, sharper shock from uh, Omicron um, on this occasion. That's the hope. So again, it's getting ready. Again, as JP said, it's the, it's the getting started back up again is the issue. But we, we have some adaptive learning here over the last 21 months is that if we can ride out this kind of hurricane for the month of January, there's still very strong prospects of the economy not missing a beat and back into a strong growth trajectory again. And we'll talk, I'm sure, a little later on on more macro stories about how central banks globally have had a monumental mistake in terms of what a pandemic was going to do to the world economy. You know, thought that it would be, that it would be shorter, that it would be, you know, excess supply, huge unemployment, huge undercapacity utilisation. We, we're in exactly the opposite situation. We've got huge excess demand, huge inflationary pressures, huge rationing going on. So there really is, you know, two very different stories going on, that experience economy, hospitality shutdown story, and then a really other type of economic struggle that we're involved with, which has got to do with excess demand and way too much money sloshing around in the global system. Lucinda, keen to get your view on the politics of all of this, because the Dutch have decided on a pretty harsh lockdown, haven't they? Um, for, for a month or so. I mean, they've closed all their pubs, restaurants, gyms, hairdressers and, and the like. We've left them open uh, until 8pm and we, we put other restrictions in place, mask wearing and so forth. Um, was the government right to do that? Should the government just have gone for a hard lockdown? Have they handled this well, in your opinion? I don't think anybody in their right mind could advocate a complete shutdown of the economy yet again. I mean, we're almost two years into this pandemic. Um, the mantra in May, June, July 2020, was living with COVID. And here we are, you know, almost almost uh, two years later, and we still have no idea how to live with COVID. I think it's important to say that, 
you know, at every stage we were aware that there would be new variants. This does not come as a surprise or a shock to anybody. And I think that, you know, the global response, not just the Irish government, but globally, I think has been pretty poor. And, you know, on the one hand, we're sort of expected to sit back and just accept this and um, and sort of say, shrug our shoulders and say, oh, here we go into another lockdown. Um, and, you know, in some instances, people are calling for more and greater restrictions. But I take a very different view. I, I think that a lot of this was very foreseeable. You know, certainly last summer, we saw the Israelis and others moving ahead with their booster vaccination programs. We didn't. Um, we stood down our vaccination program. You know, it it was slow to get going. It ramped up, I think, very effectively uh, in late spring, early summer. Um, you know, we have obviously a very, very high uptake amongst the Irish population. So Irish people have been responsible. They're doing what they've been asked to do and uh, and have done it with great gusto, probably partly because we're an island and people wanted you know, wanted their COVID cert so that they might be able to travel again. Um, but, uh, you know, instead of sort of in late August, September, October, ramping up the booster programme as other countries were doing, um, we we actually did the opposite. And now we're in a race to try and particularly get our older population or vulnerable population and then everybody else boosted. But that could have been done um, at an earlier stage. There isn't an issue with supply. Um, and I think that we probably would not require the level of restrictions that we're seeing now if that had happened. Lucinda, do we need an ongoing programme of vaccination, booster, call it what you want, uh, from here on in, because as you say, there could be other variants come along and there could be twists and turns in this COVID saga. So should we have a national programme of vaccination or, or boosters uh, on an ongoing basis? I think it goes without saying. I mean, this is, I mean, this is a, 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 it is effectively a form of flu and every winter we have new variants of flu. And let's remember, it wreaks absolute havoc on our health system. So this is not unique. I mean, it's it's different, but it's not unique. And the difference is that we have learned how to deal with the flu variants. And, you know, we encourage those at risk to get vaccinated every autumn, winter, and it helps at least to reduce pressure on the system. I think it's inevitable that that's going to be required here when it comes to the future of managing COVID-19. COVID-19 is not going anywhere. You know, we had various kind of harebrained campaigns to eliminate COVID. We saw what happened in Australia and elsewhere. Um, not not possible, not feasible. It's endemic. Um, and we have, to, we have to learn to live with it. I, I mean, it's such a cliche and we've been hearing it now for two years, but we have to learn to live with it. And it will involve boosters. Now, there are people who will refuse to get vaccinated um, on a regular basis. What's happening at the moment is actually that the vaccination programme is to some extent being undermined because people are sort of saying, well, you know, last Christmas, nobody was vaccinated. And, uh, you know, we had restaurants open, we had hospitality. Yes, a price was certainly paid in, in January. But, um, you know, we have the vaccines, uh, we have the tools. We also have antivirals, by the way. And, you know, the interesting thing is several of those were um, EMA approved in November and the Irish government hasn't moved to contract with any of those suppliers, unlike, for example, the Dutch government and others, the US administration, which has done a, a major deal with Pfizer. We're still twiddling our thumbs and, and talking about it. It's been referenced in every speech I've heard from every minister in the last two or three weeks, but the Irish government actually hasn't moved ahead to do anything on the various treatments that are now available and approved by the European Medicines Agency. So yet again, you know, um, far too much complacency. And, you know, the fall guys here, unfortunately, are those working in hospitality, in tourism and other, you know, SMEs that are affected. Yes, the, the broad GDP picture is a positive one, but my God, you know, there are individual businesses 
and sectors that are just being hammered again and again and again in Ireland. And that there just has to be a more proactive effort to try and ensure that this doesn't happen again, because it shouldn't happen again. Danny, can we be certain that more restrictions won't be coming? No, I'm I'm not certain that more restrictions won't be coming. I think uh, I agree with everything that Lucinda said there, but that other cliche from before, we are where we are. Um, and in that regard, this surge does appear to be potentially really strong when you look across what's happening in the UK or in Holland. And yes, things are different between um, countries. The one thing we did learn from last year wasn't just January. Uh, it was much more uh, a four-month phenomenon that time with, with Delta. So one of the big fears here is, um, and the is right, it, it is unfortunately the same group in the experience economy are getting hammered. But with the contract tracing element on the scale of this, this could be impacting on manufacturing as well um, significantly. So some of the engines that stayed powered up during the last 21 months may, may find themselves in, in some difficulty if the predictions around the scale of this hits true, even though it mightn't be a health issue um, in its gravity, it may have the capacity, though, to have a much wider impact into the business community. So there is, there is within the business community a view for more restrictions faster to ensure that it's a shorter, sharper shock uh, on this occasion. JP, I just wonder, given the restrictions on hospitality since COVID first, hit us in March 2020, whether you've considered throwing in the towel at all or even at one of uh, one or other of your venues just, you know, handing the keys back essentially because um, the future is too clouded. I suppose I have I certainly had my, had my moments, as I said to you, particularly in relation to an ear. It's uh, a mission star restaurant is a, is a difficult thing to run at the best of times. And so in a pandemic, it is it is even even worse. It's also just my feeling. And, and as Danny and about Lucinda said about the economy doing OK in in a broad way, like I suppose it's it's my own sentiment that like how how necessary is hospitality? <laughs> like when you feel like that, you kind of feel scapegoated and isolated in the sense that the economy's doing all right, so do the government technically need restaurants at all? And then you start to question yourself, do we need to be in another industry because there are some businesses that are that are thriving through all this? And I mean, my worry that if we do go into lockdown in January, and I know Danny was saying Delta was a four-month affair. I mean, for us, it was a seven-month affair. We closed Christmas Eve and we reopened August for indoor dining. And, and I'd be worried that seven months would absolutely destroy us this time. I, I don't think I could do another seven months of just waiting. And I think that would cause a lot of a lot of issues. And I mean, Leo of Radker did say that we're going to have to like take the good times better in the sense that, I mean, Denmark opened in um, the end of April and we waited until the end of July. And so that's four months of, of that we did takeaway. And uh, and we started outdoor dining in uh, the beginning of July. So I do think if we're going to recognise that the winter is going to be difficult with different variants, we're going to have to plan uh, better. And also, I think that we, we're going to have to have better strategies. I mean, hospitality is not the problem. And there are a lot of problems. I mean, the schools was a big problem. Hospitals are a big problem. So we, we have to start to look at how we can fix those two and I mean, uh, hospitality is just like a pressure cooker. It's just relieving the, the pressure from, from, from other places. But I do think that the kind of unscientific nature of a lot of the 
the restrictions like you can have a wedding after eight you can you, if you're a resident in a hotel you can have your dinner and and, uh, and drink I mean they don't help anyone uh, and it's certainly they just cause more bitterness and infighting between different sectors whether you're a pub a restaurant or whether you can have a wedding or you're a hotel so I, I do think that we need to be smarter about how we how we lock down JP just curious as well about the Mitchell and Star for a year does that just continue to roll over during COVID, uh, do the inspectors still come around? How, how does that work? No, they've been around a few times since we opened. Surprisingly, I think we've actually had three visits. I mean, we closed for 18 months and we, we, we let them know we were closed and they kind of gave us a pass for a year. But I mean, you need to get assessed every year. The ceremony is on, uh, is supposed to be on in January in Birmingham. I don't think I'll be going to Birmingham in January. I don't know if anyone would be going to Birmingham in January. But look, it'll probably be online again and, and hopefully... Ireland will will do well out of it. It does mean a lot for international tourism and and I suppose the perception of Irish food. So look, all we can do is is continue to try and do what we do. And look, we've had so many people. I mean, one benefit of of this whole pandemic is that we've never had so many Irish people in the restaurant, and that's a really good thing because most of them would head abroad in July and August, but they came into a near specifically. A near sometimes is has predominantly Americans in it, you know, and so it was really nice to see a lot of people from all over Ireland and I hope that continues. Lucinda, JP mentioned there about the impact on schools and on hospitals as well and um, you know we've heard for months and months and months talk about why don't we have uh, better air conditioning in schools, uh, HEP filters and so forth and why don't we add capacity to our health system so that it wouldn't be threatened uh, you know when when a variant like this um, comes along and that all comes down I suppose to the government and the political response to all of this, um, has it been good enough? And why haven't we done some of those things that have been talked about for months and months? I honestly don't know the answer to that. Um, when you think about the billions of euro that have been pumped into the economy to support businesses that are shut, um, you know, logically, you have to question why some of those resources weren't diverted to installing proper filtration systems, um, HEPA filters, etc., particularly in schools. And I mean, I'm an ardent advocate of keeping schools op- open. I happen to have a daughter who's in second class and a little boy in Montessori. But actually, put aside my personal investment in this, I mean, I, I just, I think, you know, and the number one priority has to be to keep our children in education, both for the basic educational purposes and for social interaction. Um, so important for them at that stage. But, you know, expecting them to go into classrooms without any uh, any safety measures in place and then trying to convince us, um, which I think Neffet are still claiming that there is no transmission in schools, which is complete nonsense. Nobody believes that. And the science doesn't back that up. Of course, there's massive transmission in schools. And I know in my own school, and all of our local schools around our area, um, kids have been getting infected and, and, and infecting each other. And that's just a fact. So why weren't measures put in place at a cost? Yes. But I think with a, with a massive mitigation uh, impact and effect, I can't understand there are other there are other questions around this, particularly around hospitals. I mean, we're you know we're given figures, um, st- you know, data around deaths from COVID, but we actually don't know how many of those are people who actually presented in hospital 
um, with COVID-19, because of COVID-19, or who were in hospital and contracted COVID in hospital. I think that's really important to have much greater access to information about that, because I think that there is a lot that still can and should be done in hospitals to prevent onward transmission. Obviously, anybody who's in um, in a high dependency unit, an ICU or whatever, is going to be absolutely at risk um, and there is a lot of um, of infection occurring within hospital settings, not because of any fault of the staff who I know are under enormous pressure, but because uh, adequate um, investment in safety and safeguarding has not occurred. So there's a lot that could have been done that I think would, would save the Exchequer a lot in the long run. And uh, again, there's been a certain short-sightedness and a certain amount of denial as well around a lot of this. Um, I mean, we did have uh, Professor Nolan and others uh, claiming that HEPA filters have, would have no effect in schools. But yet, the working group that was established by the government to, with experts in this field um, arrived at an entirely different c- conclusion and it was simply ignored by both the government and NEFET. Um, so, you know, we say we want science-based, evidence-based decision-making, and then we bring in the experts to provide the evidence and they're just overridden and ignored by people in, in very uh, influential and powerful decision-making positions right now. Listen, one of the features of this year is the rise of Sinn Féin in the polls and uh, a lot of nervousness, I'm sure, in Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil about that. Are you expecting that to continue in 2022? And what can the government parties do to try and counter that? Pascal Donoghue um, suggesting that, well, obviously that they're doing a very good job, but that the government parties put them all together and they account for more in the polls than Sinn Féin. But that seems... Um, Seems like a curious one. I think the Thornish was quick to to maybe adopt a slightly different approach. I mean, I, I've never seen a kind of a grand coalition of that nature um, facing the electorate and being being returned resoundingly. It tends to not work out very well. What occurs is that the identity of the of the the parties involved is diluted. Um, so I don't think it's in the interest of Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, or the Green Party to go to the country as a kind of a unified um, force, because, you know, obviously then the only alternative is, is effectively Sinn Féin and, and the other left-wing parties in opposition. So it wouldn't be a very smart political strategy f- from, my, from where I'm standing, uh, at least. Um, I, I look, I, I think the government faces a lot of difficulty. You know, both of the larger parties were returned, weakened after the last election. And the way to rebuild is obviously not in government, in a coalition with each other. So, you know, I think it could only go one direction Add to that huge frustration around COVID and, you know, other issues that are facing the country. You know, if you look at the green transition, major opportunity economically, I mean, major, but, you know, not a lot tangible emerging, you know, by way of sort of benefit, but a lot emerging by way of burden. Uh, If you look at, you know, um, carbon taxes and rising fuel costs, etc., energy prices, all of that having a negative impact on the government. And of course, Sinn Féin, very cynically, but very cleverly, getting on um, uh, the, the sort of anti-carbon tax bandwagon, uh, being the voice of opposition, as they did in the past with bin charges and various other charges, water charges, of course, being, being probably the biggest, biggest flashpoint in the last 10 years. Um, cynical, but opportunistic and, and clever politically, and it's working for Sinn Féin. I mean, who would have anticipated Sinn Féin would be 15 points ahead of both Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil? It's not an aberration. It's a very clear trend. And if there's an election anytime soon, Sinn Féin will be the leading party in government without a shadow of a doubt. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, 
our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Danny McCoy, how do IBEC members uh, feel about Sinn Féin leading the next government? I know a general election uh, still looks some time away, but there must be there must be uh, some concern among your members about Sinn Féin being in power. I think traditionally there is, given the the rhetoric of Sinn Féin in terms of the perceived class divide that we have in Ireland. Um, it's often mediated through what their policies are as towards personal income and personal wealth. Um, I think on the corporate side, more specifically, um, their policies at the moment aren't actually that frightening. Um, we've heard Mary Lou MacDonald uh, lament the rise in the corporation tax rate to uh, 15% and welcome the 12.5% for the vast majority of businesses. Similarly, the campaign um, in the quasi-government um, structures of Northern Ireland in terms of Sinn Féin supporting a 12.5% corporation tax rate for there as well. Also, there's other issues that businesses are dealing with, which in the past would be anatoma uh, on issues around collectivism, collective bargaining rights, uh, potentially trade union recognition, policies that the current government is pursuing as well, living wage, uh, right to disconnect, a um, whole range of leave. So... The tenor globally is towards socialism and on the corporate front, Sinn Féin are talking uh, the talk uh, in, in that fashion. But Lucinda's right in the bit about the uh, populist taxation piece around carbon taxes. I mean, that is an inconsistency for a party that will ultimately uh, strive to be in government. And, you know, if you stand back, Sinn Féin have a real problem now is it's a bit like being a team that's 2-0 up and trying to defend it. The next two and a half years are very awkward when you're inevitably going to get in. And there's many a slip between cup and lip there, but also you have to be careful what you're going to inherit when you actually get the reins of power. So I think there's a lot to play for for the corporates and for business over the next two and a half years, both with Sinn Féin and with the existing parties that they would set out their stall in the centre because... And something that maybe for in the prediction game a little later on, what we know for certainty is that the big disputes in the streets are going to be about the cost of living. It's going to be about inflation. It's going to be about the rationing that's already here. All of those excess demand factors. And it's inevitable that central banks are going to have to take away the money. And so interest rates and inflation are going to be, coexist for a while. And that's going to bring a lot of tension. And so, you know, Sinn Féin won't get an easy pass here. They're going to have to reveal coherent policies for government in these two-and-a-half-year run-in. So the inevitability of Sinn Féin being in power, I think it's far too soon to tell, actually. But there will be a very different two-and-a-half-year pressure on Sinn Féin, as much as it is on the incumbent government, to actually set their stall out for the world as it, as it is, not going back to you know, old positions, which, frankly, are no longer coherent or, or consistent, sure. given, given the move towards collectivism. Danny, give us your view for next year on cost of living. Um, we've seen the Bank of England increase, uh, uh, announce a, an interest rate increase. The Fed has kind of signalled three for next year. Um, no word yet from the ECB. What's your expectation? 
Yeah, I think the ECB will be slower uh, than than the others to actually come to this because the the nature of the, the narrative of this is transitory, the inflation. I think inflation will come down in terms of a of a number in the next 12 months because of base effects and so on. But I do think the genie's out of the bottle. Just to give a sense of scale here about how much money, and I think this is a classic, you know, I don't want to be dystopic going into the new year, I want to be optimistic, but all, all really bad things through history, all the major wars have come as a result of monetary arrangements that have gone wrong. Back to the Napoleon Wars, the coming off the gold standard for the First World War, for the hyperinflation from getting the monetary system wrong, going to the Second War, etc. We've just lived through a monetary phenomenon that's gone wrong. As central banks thought they were going to need to pump the money in because, as I said at the start, about this excess supply and overhang. It's exactly the opposite. There's way too much money in the global system. Of all the US dollars ever created, ever created, 40% of them have been created in the last 21 months. That's the sheer scale of the amount of tsunami of money that's been released. And the consequence of that, when you've got so much money, all kinds of signals to productivity, to competitors, go out the window. And we see this in a dysfunctional labour market. We've got a full employment economy here and scarcity uh, of workers, which is going to be a real pinch point in Ireland in the coming year. So that's replicated right across. The disappearance of the unskilled worker is a phenomenon globally. Minimum wages are going up by up to 40% in the US. We've seen the UK minimum wage increase dramatically. It's going to happen here too in terms of those wage pressures. And in that regard, it's going to be hard to see how this wage inflation spiral gets broken, but it will have to. And I think that's where you'll see a lot of the street protests, a lot of governments having to react to this, because small economies like Ireland can't actually soak up that money. It's a bit like the pandemic virus. We can't shut ourselves off from it. So inflation is going to be a lot higher, Kieran, than people might wish it to be. The labour market's going to stay a lot tighter. Participation is going down. Uh, and the, if you want for the good news here, is the economy is going to continue to grow because of the level of investment that's already been made over the last six to seven years. The level of capital investment in Ireland, the amount of manufacturing we have here, is inevitably going to lead to growth rates for a few more years. And that might sound like a good thing, but you can get too much of a good thing. Those other societal problems of even, you know, the ventilation of the schools we talked about. Correct. But who is going to put them in? You know, uh, the move to AI robotics. Where are you going to get the skills to actually put that in place to replace the labour that's disappearing? So we've got a lot of disruption coming in the next two and a half years before that election. And I think we'll have high inflation. I think we have a lot of stress around the cost of living for certain sectors of our society. JP, as a business owner, what kind of wage inflation have you experienced? And I'm just wondering about your... Prices as well. Uh, um, did you put up your prices uh, recently? Or are you expecting to put them up again in the new year? The prices certainly went up over COVID at least once. I mean, n- not dramatically, but yeah, like the wages have gone up in, in a crazy way. I mean, not only the not only is the minimum wage gone up, but the because the demand, the skills, the I suppose the skill set is uh, 
is we're missing a, a large amount of, uh, of of skilled workers. I mean, workers are demanding are demanding more. So, I mean, there is a pressure on small businesses to try and retain skilled staff and try and pay them what they want, but at the same time, trying to stay in some degree profitable. And I do agree with Danny that that is going to come to a head. Like we can't keep putting our prices up because sooner or later it's not, um, it won't be viable. And I think Anir was, was it 85 or 95 for the tasting menu? And now it's 110. But our, our wages go up to nearly 40% some weeks and that's not viable either. And so I suppose we, we'll see... We'll see what happens. I mean, I really, I really think that what will happen is um, there will be an explosion in terms of a lot of places will close because what will happen is the wages will keep going up and costs will keep going up and then it will collapse. And I, I suppose we're just trying to keep it in, on an even keel. I mean, there are some businesses that I know that still owe money from to revenue for the beginning of the pandemic because I haven't paid it yet. So we're, I suppose, trying to be pragmatic and just trying to say, what can we do? A lot of the the grant money that we are getting, we're trying to use it for that. But look, we're I suppose we're level headed, and a lot of businesses aren't. And the worry is that you you get all this grant money into your account, and then you think you have money, and then you go and you refit your kitchen or you refit your restaurant, and then you realize no, that you don't have that money at all. So yeah, there are a lot of issues. I mean, I would still have hope in the industry, and we're we're planning another project now, and we're hoping to open another restaurant and and build a little. Um, townhouse so look i mean as entrepreneurs we'll just continue to try and do what we do and with regards to Sinn Féin and government and that i mean we're i think entrepreneurs are very pragmatic and i think that i can't see any difference between any of the political parties at the moment anymore because of i suppose it is just about pragmatic ideology and i think we we need to stay in business and uh, at the end of the day that that's what's uh, that's what's necessary Lucinda, it sounds like you got out of politics at just the right time. Tell us what your what your clients are experiencing. Uh, you know, you're in a, in an advisory capacity. I know you're you're in and out of uh, Brussels quite a bit. Um, a lot of your clients are doing business overseas, uh, etc. So, what kind of stresses and strains are coming true for them, and how are you helping to guide them through that? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the majority of our clients will be multinationals. So, uh, and a lot of them in the tech and pharmaceutical uh, sectors, so you know they're busy and uh, and they're you know they're they're doing pretty well at present. I think the biggest frustration. I mean, there's okay, and Danny will experience a lot of this with his members as well. I mean, there are a number of challenges. Uh, definitely wage inflation. Definitely just the um, the competition for talent and the lack of talent and skilled workers. And that's across, you know, as we've just heard from JP, that's across the the indigenous SME sector, and it's um, it's a challenge for multinationals. And I think, you know, with the tax debate, um, the global tax debate ongoing, and let's see where it all ends up because it seems to be uh, stumbling uh, at a number of hurdles uh, on Capitol Hill in the US at the moment. But if Ireland ultimately has to amend its its twelve and a half percent corporate tax uh, sort of calling card, we will have to come up with other calling cards and we will have to be competitive. We will have to have the talent. We will have to have the R&D and, you know, all of the other 
things that multinationals are looking for to maintain investment here. Now, I don't have any concern about that in the short term. I think, you know, Ireland is a really attractive destination for FDI. We've seen record year in the last the last year, etc. But but competitiveness is definitely going to become a bigger and bigger factor. Um, and that pressurizes everybody. And when it comes to co- competing with other locations for further FDI in the future, it will become a, a bigger factor. So it's something that the government needs to be seriously taking taking um, account of. Um, one of the biggest frustrations for my clients is just the lack of progress on legislation and policy implementation. It is unbelievable how slow everything is progressing um, in the Irish government system at the moment. Promise legislation just simply isn't materialising. You know, it's like it's like government departments have down tools. I was writing at the weekend about, you know, about renewable energy, wind energy. I mean, the opportunity for Ireland is just it's it's actually mind boggling. You know, a small island on the on the Western Atlantic uh, shore. And yet we can't get our act together with planning, with, you know, just creating the environment um, for for that huge investment that should be coming our way. Um, so loads of opportunity, a lot of positivity about Ireland continuing, but definitely risks around the corner if we don't up our game from, you know, from the point of view of policymaking, regulation and, um, you know, and, and just uh, putting in place the building blocks to insulate Ireland in the future against competition from, you know, uh, lower cost, uh, more nimble economies. Danny McCoy, uh, let's hope that we'll be able to reopen the economy fully uh, early next year and we'll get on top of this uh, COVID situation. But if we do, um, the supports, the financial supports that have been uh, there in place for businesses over the past 21 months or so are going to be gradually withdrawn, aren't they? And that that's a good thing, you would think. But will that place a lot of businesses, uh, will it make them vulnerable to collapse? Uh, we're hearing from the insolvency sector that, you know, eventually when when the dust settles on COVID and the supports are withdrawn, a lot of companies simply won't be able to stand on their own two feet. They're just going to go out of business. That's inevitable. Um, it's a matter of the scale. So what is the scale? What do you think the scale will be? Well, I don't know, but what we've seen actually even in the UK when the furlough scheme was withdrawn, it has been surprisingly less than was anticipated because at the heart of this, and even in JP's business, what he's saying earlier on there, it's been the supply side, not the lack of demand. You know, if, if you get a fair run at the uh, opening up, uh, the demand will be there. And so lots of businesses could survive on the basis of the demand that's forthcoming. So I anticipate the scale will be a lot less. But inevitably, after 21 months, lots of businesses will, will fail normally anyhow, even in the best of times. But the tragedy on this occasion, it'll probably be from the supply side. It'll be because the costs have got out of control, because you can't staff the business. And also um, that aspect about the revenue, you know, after 21, will be 24 months at this stage, uh, two years of buildup of uh, own the tax man, a lot of people will just say, we'll go to business and start again. So you will see a lot of uh, default, but I don't anticipate it being off a scale that would have been anticipated at the start of the pandemic, because... It's a, it's a completely different story. The demand is really strong. The tragedy, and this goes to the heart of what Lucinda was saying, is that if we could get our, our planning and our structures in place, it could be dampened a lot. You know, slightly tongue-in-cheek, the Eric Morkham line is, we are playing all the right notes. We're just not playing them in the right order. Um, you know, so we have, a, we have a lot of capacity here if we could coordinate and have a coherent plan. We have the resources we have the people, 
We have the capacity to learn from all of this. We just need a leadership space that actually puts these pieces in the right order, put, play the notes in the right way. Uh, let's talk about housing, Danny. We've, we seem to have had a housing crisis for the past 10 years or so. Uh, I'm wondering whether next year the tide might finally turn on this. COVID has obviously knocked it sideways a little bit. What's your view? Look, we've got an increasing population. There's over 5 million of us now in the Republic. Uh, the dynamics are such that after the backlog of, of the 10 years, this isn't going to be solved anytime soon. Uh, the supply side is not going to meet that demand um, in a reasonable time frame, unfortunately, because there's a whole host of other uh, aspects competing for that scarce labour to build the houses, even just to start on that. So the, the housing crisis and the cost of housing is, I think, um, still more than half a decade away from actually being tipped into somewhere that becomes back into reasonableness. If, if you had nothing else competing for those resources, we could do it faster. But people have to be realistic. And, you know, partly it is the same parents who are crowding out their own kids from the housing market because they're extending their houses. Uh, they'll be retrofitting their houses. That's using up the scarce labour to actually build a new housing stock that everybody wants. So people can't just absorb themselves here and say it's the government's problem. It's our own actions and our own demands on the system that is actually making that housing crisis um, much more difficult. Well, retrofitting houses is part of a national strategy, isn't it, to, to deal with uh, climate change? Maybe this is one for you, Lucinda, retrofitting half a million houses. I don't know how realistic that is, putting a million electric cars on the road by 2030 um, and getting to a net zero uh, position by 2050. Is it feasible? Well, I think this is where the rhetoric is not being met by policy action, you know, um, whether it's electric vehicles, whether it's retrofitting schemes, you know, it's just not manifesting in tangible action. Um, and, and that, I think, is where we we certainly will fall down. And actually what's happening is, you know, prices are increasing. I already mentioned, you know, fuel prices increasing. Um, and there's very little sort of um, comfort or off, uh, offset um, for people who are struggling to, to meet those demands and those costs. Danny talked about the need for a sort of for coherent leadership. And I think that's really absent. Um, even if you look at the composition of government departments, you've got, you know, energy lumped in with climate action, lumped in with transport, all in the one department. It's it's actually, it's really quite insane when you think about it. One minister um, supposed to drive all of that massive transformation agenda. It's not possible. And, um, you know, I think that there just really needs to be a, an emphasis or a focus on providing leadership to implement policies rather than, you know, stating and restating grand plans for, for climate action, for housing, etc. We've had more strategies than we've had concrete actions. So I think there's a lot of work for the government to really knuckle down. And this is where, you know, back to the question about what will happen if there is an election in two and a half years, if it doesn't all, if the house doesn't come crumbling down before then, which of course is possible, the government will be assessed on what it can get done. I think housing is going to be a key part of that. I don't think anybody expects it to be solved. Uh, and Danny's right in terms of, you know, just the scale of the challenge with the growing growing population. But, you know, concrete, tangible measures that are understandable and are, you know, are visible to the public, I think, um, would go a long way. Likewise, on the green agenda, you know, tangible 
supports put in place for the transition to electric vehicles, retrofitting houses. Also, I think, you know, addressing the issue of derelict houses, etc. Um, there's a lot that can be done. Uh, the planning system is dysfunctional. It's completely, totally and utterly dysfunctional. So, you know, how we intend to solve a housing crisis with a dysfunctional planning system, I think, is, is anybody's guess. So, you know, there are concrete things that the government can do that could actually play very well politically for them within the next two years. But if they don't, you know, the opposition is certainly going to surge uh, and it, it'll continue to go in the direction it's been going for the past while. Yeah, you're talking about a change in leadership. Actually, there is supposed to be a change in leadership next year. At the end of next year, Leo Varadkar is supposed to become Taoiseach and uh, Mion Martin steps down from that role. Suggestions also that Michael McGraw will become Minister for Finance. I'm not sure what role Pascal would fill if that, if that comes true. Does that cut it for you, Lucinda? Well, look, I mean, uh, I think, you know, we, you're going to have the same figures at the top of government. I mean, I think the expectation is that um, Michael McGraw would become finance minister and Pascal Donoghue would return to the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform. So you'll have the same characters. And, you know, when you start gaming out what a new cabinet would look like, it's very difficult to see any major change. There'll be some tweaking, but I mean, no party has a lot of cabinet seats, you know, so you can't have a wholesale reshuffle because, you know, who are you going to sack? And, uh, you know, the benches aren't exactly as deep, perhaps, as, as some of those leaders might like. So you're going to have basically the same faces in government. And really, I think it's about, you know, really concentrating. I mean, we used to, I suppose, when I was back, back when I was in government, um, we used to always um, sort of point to Richard Bruton's, you know, he'd always have a 10 point plan or a 20 point plan or, you know, he'd have like these minute sort of action plans with great detail. But actually things got done. And I think we really need to see ministers just implementing, you know, yes, have your grand strategy, but like, what does that look like in practice? What legislation are you passing? You know, what are the reforms you're going to achieve in whatever, in the, in the health service? How many beds are you going to bring on? How are you going to manage your vaccination program? Because that is now key to everything if we want to keep the economy open into 2022. And, uh, you know, how are you going to make changes to the planning system so that we can build the offshore wind turbines? And how are we going to connect them um, to the interconnector and what, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So like, Concrete actions, um, I think, is is what what are really missing currently, and have been really partly because of the pandemic, but partly because you've got three parties in the coalition, and um, and it's all a little bit incoherent. And I'm not sure that you know changing the you know one person into the Taoiseach's office, replacing the other, I don't think that's going to have a major impact. It's it's the cultural approach to government, um, uh, which I think we need to see change. And uh, I'm hopeful, but I, I'm certainly not banking on it. JP, can I ask you about this climate change debate and how it impacts on you and your business? Obviously, agriculture and food are kind of at the heart of this climate change uh, debate. And we're told about how the ag sector is going to have to reduce its uh, methane output and, you know, maybe cull the national herd and so forth. And obviously, a lot of focus on food miles and, you know, beef coming from Argentina or Brazil or wherever uh, and going from Ireland to somewhere else. So how does this impact on your business? I suppose the, the the food miles wouldn't impact as much. I mean, because I suppose our three places have a kind of 
a local agenda. But I, I do see it impacting in the wider industry where, where chicken or beef is extremely cheap, particularly chicken. I mean, chicken costs next to nothing at the moment. And if there is going to be carbon tax or uh, tax on food miles, food is going to get more expensive in places where you generally have cheap food. So whether that's supermarkets or fast food. So, and that will impact us in, in uh, I suppose, indirectly. I mean, it's a difficult one to, to, to predict. I mean, I think that restaurants will have to become more conscious of uh, how much meat they have on, your, uh, on their menu and how much that is, uh, that is costing. I mean, there is a shift towards more plant-based eating and, and we see it firsthand. And, and I suppose in an air, we serve mostly fish, shellfish and, and veg, and we have a, one or two meat dishes, but not a, a massive amount. So I do think that the diet will change going forward and younger people will start to eat differently. I would love to see, I mean, Lucinda mentioned about like ministers with portfolios. I would love to see a minister for food in Ireland someday. I mean, I know we have agriculture, but like that's production and we have tourism, but like we really need a concerted uh, effort around, I mean, our food as a cultural experience. And the Nordics have been uh, so um, uh, good at doing that and we've seen how it has transformed their food. But we really need someone looking after food because food is seen as a vehicle for X, Y and Z, but hardly something in and of itself. Um, Danny McCoy, can I just ask you your view of the ag sector? Um, I, I, I know it's... Uh... It's probably a little bit uh, lateral for IBEC, but um, nonetheless, it's an important sector for the economy. Uh, it's an important uh, part of the climate change uh, debate. So how is this going to uh, roll out? We're told about how technology um, might help us meet this uh, methane problem that our national herd seems to have. Is that feasible or are we simply going to have to call it? Uh, are the days of beef farmers numbered? No, I don't, I don't think they are, but it goes to the heart of... Um what JP said about the chicken, um, just the pricing is all wrong, you know, that things are going to have to become more premium and expensive and less. Just on two things, uh, going into the coming year, Kieran, I, I, it's part of my callow youth. I've been around for about 30 years talking about sustainable development. And um, I did a paper recently on that 30-year arc. And while there's no doubt the signal and trend is towards more environmental awareness, that's been there for 30 years but it hasn't actually come forward with the intensity that you would anticipate it. And the reason is the cycle, the economic cycle gets in the way. You know, the financial crisis, you know, there's a great push in 2006 with the Stern report around the global uh, warming climate change, and it got knocked off by the great financial crisis. The cycle of inflation, that's what I was talking about earlier, is going to knock the environmental piece back again. The governments are not going to start to push forward on the carbon tax agenda against that backdrop of the cost of living. Something will have to give and it'll be buying for more time on the environmental, despite the targets for 2030. Because what we've seen even in Europe in this kind of fit for 55 package is we've effectively near double the ambition from three years ago. We've got three years less to do it. And the costs are going to be exponentially higher because you'll have done the cheaper stuff first. And we're told by the Intergovernmental uh, Panel on Climate Change, we're out of time. Something has to give under those dimensions, either hitting the target, doing it in the time frame, or the cost goes off the Richter scale. It's not going to happen, right? So let's, that doesn't mean we don't do, stop doing things, but the, the foolish part here will be 
to have zeal and pretense you're going to do it and put industries into disarray, we have to recalibrate to say, given those conditions and what's economic cycle we're going to face, what actually is achievable? And technology can be part of this solution, but the technology isn't arriving in the time frame to 2030 for electrical vehicles, for AI. It is ironic that the labour market that we have right now is a disappearance of workers before the technology can arrive. Think about the drivers of trucks. Autonomous trucks is the future, not here yet. Uh, yet we're going, to, you know, we're going to face these constraint problems in the short term. These are lofty ideals. The state, there may be sunlit uplands, but unfortunately it's the fire in the valley that's lighting them up right now. Well, are your members doing enough to help this cause along? Yeah, I think they are. I would say that, wouldn't I? But everybody is doing this at an individual level. Uh, you know, companies are doing their net zero, but actually, and this is what's referred to as scope one, scope two, which is things you have control over actually in the business. Scope three is when you bring in your other stakeholders, your suppliers, your customers, though. Uh, people aren't getting on top of that scope three aspect because a bit of a pass the parcel onto the other, the other business. Um, and so what we're going to find, and this is kind of a common theme, collectivism. Collectivism is not just about employees and about citizens and young people on the streets. Corporations are going to have to gather together to actually collectively deal with some of these problems. And that's the challenge. You know, businesses saying they're moving from shareholder value to stakeholder values. It's a nice thing to say, but to action it requires business acting collectively as well uh, in forms of co-ops and so on. And we're still a long way from that. So some of the problems that we're dealing with, just transitions and so on, we're still only in the early stages of this. And there isn't a chance it's going to happen inside the time frame that the IPCC tell us for the environment. So either, if that's true and is a binding constraint, we're going to have the most disruptive decade in front of us, or else people are going to start to balance out the damage from the environment and say, up with this we shall put and try to adapt more to mitigate. That doesn't mean that people are sceptics about the science. The science, I think, is pretty conclusive right now in terms of near certainty. But what's missing is the social will to actually go and do this when faced with a myriad of other problems. And I believe that all of the COP22 and all of the, this is the most important, it may well be, but you won't see people's actions being consistent with that. So uh, I think the environmental issue is actually going to hit the reality of a surging inflation world and it's the inflation world that's going to win. That's what policymakers will react to, people screaming about higher prices. They will not be putting the higher charges that are necessary to get that kind of investment going. Okay, this show is all about looking uh, towards next year. So um, perhaps we'll close. I'll, I'll ask you all to give me one major prediction for 2022, preferably one we haven't uh, already discussed. Might start with you, JP. God, I um, I don't know. I am not a man for making predictions. Negative is okay. Negative is all right. Um, I, I do think we're going to see a, a lot of restaurants uh, or hospitality businesses close. I don't see how we can manage it. I do think you will have new ones. I I think, I mean, I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm 43 and I'm in business since I was, since 
what, 2008. I, I think that depending on what age you are and how tired you are and how many lockdowns you'll go through, I think sooner or later people are going to start to um, move. And I think that's, it's, um, we can't do anything about that. And I think particularly the rural, I, I would be worried a lot about rural hospitality, rural pubs, rural restaurants, because they don't have the footfall to keep themselves going. Lucinda? I think... Um uh, Rachel Blackmore will win the Cheltenham Gold Cup. Okay, that's a good one. I was hoping that it might be more uh, economic or business related. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, um, I fear. I mean, I, I think my, my my prediction is pretty pessimistic, but I fear that we're going to be uh, in the same boat with COVID for the coming twelve months, unless there is a genuine effort in central government to um, to start to plan ahead and put in place uh, a consistent vaccination program for the autumn and winter 2022 otherwise we're going to be back in the same boat again so it's, unfortunately it's a rather pessimistic one i'd rather go with the racial blackmore one to be honest okay that's two pessimistic ones uh, danny you're normally a glass half full type of man uh, what's your prediction yeah so let's go for it i think the uh, end of 2022 is going to look a lot more like 2019 than people would believe right now i think i think the new normal won't be as sustainable as people think, I expect we will get back to the central business districts and to working from the office to be much more prevalent than people are currently predicting. I think there will be a reversion back because these things are deep structural parameters in an economy. The notion of working from home will be there and is facilitated there, but actually people will be surprised by how much there's a collectivism required in terms of getting back into the mutual spaces. And that includes the experience economy, which I would predict will have a very strong second half of 2022 because the the money is there. And as we talked about earlier on in terms of COVID, we know all of the elements that can keep us open. It's just they're not being put in a coherent way. So I'm, I'm confident, hopeful even, that we might actually have some adaptive learning after two years and uh, start to get it right. So having explored every other avenue, we do the right thing. Okay, we shall finish on that positive note. Danny McCoy, JP McMahon and Lucinda Creighton, thank you for joining us. It's just left for me to wish you all a very happy new year. Okay, that's it for this year from Inside Business. My thanks to JP McMahon and Lucinda Crichton and Danny McCoy. The show was produced by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day over the festive season. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next year, take care.